0: So we think not only about you know, the people we impact directly by serving them food, we actually think about their families and their relatives, and how we can have reach into those communities.
1: Hello, I'm Andrew May, and welcome to the Navit Business Fit Podcast, where we talk to experts in a range of fields, and look at lessons that can be applied to running a small business. Small business is in my veins, from running a lawn mowing business in high school in Dubbo to traveling the world as a strength and conditioning coach in elite sport to now running workplace performance consultancy, Strive Stronger. I love small business. Today's guest is a powerhouse in small business, medium and large. I've had the opportunity to work with her originally as a performance coach, then moving to partnering with her organization to provide well-being programs at large scale. Shelley Roberts is Managing Director of Compass Group, Australia's largest food services company. I'm going to give you three numbers, 615, 71 million. That's right, they are in 615 sites across Australia, they have 11,000 employees, and in the last 12 months have delivered 71 million meals to Australians. Shelley's previous roles have included Executive Director of Tiger Airways and leadership positions at Macquarie Airports, Macquarie Bank and EasyJet Airline. Shelley is an active member of Chief Executive Women and what an apt introduction because today Shelley is International <laughs> Women's Day, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Andrew, and so great to be here celebrating International Women's Day with you. I've just got one question for you before we get started. Oh,
1: I like this, yes.
0: (laughs) You need to be wearing purple.
1: (laughs) I thought this was. It's sort of a bluey black, isn't it? Um, Next time. I I (laughs) apologise. I've got off to a bad start. And we got off to a better start than that when we met through Eileen Hoggart, who was a former colleague of mine when I was at KPMG. You work with Eileen at KPMG. She's on the board at KPMG Australia. And she said to me, Andrew, you need to meet this dynamic woman named Shelley, who is doing lots and lots and lots. And you want to fill in the blanks? We met and you said to me.
0: (laughs) I said to you, well, I know what you said to me. You said you need to slow down to hurry up.
1: Mm, Because I think you wanted to do more. And we find that with lots of our small business listeners. You know, I need to do more, 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 more sometimes it's slowing down in order to speed up. I said that to you and you looked at me almost cross-eyed going, (laughs) Eileen, these are dud. Come and get me someone new. (laughs) We might keep that as an open loop and we'll come back to that because some of the changes you've made that you've really influenced your leadership team and everyone else. But let's first of all get into something I don't know about. I know you grew up in South Africa, but I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. So tell me me about your childhood. What was it like? Uh, What did you learn growing up in South Africa?
0: Well, I was interested, Andrew, when you said you started in a lawnmower business because I grew up in my dad's restaurant. And my dad came to South Africa as an immigrant um, and set up his own restaurant. Initially, he trained as a chef in someone else's restaurant and then went out on his own and set up his own small business. Nice. Where, Where was your dad from? He was from Austria. And he came to South Africa as an immigrant. And as you know, when you're setting up a small business, and I'm sure many people listening to this podcast, you go all in. And so we rented in a building and we lived above the restaurant. And so from the age of three, when I'd come home from school or the park, I would talk to the guests in the restaurant. (laughs) And um, it's really been an incredible training ground for me. Um, I feel it really helped me develop my commercial acumen because my dad had me do everything in the restaurant. Um, much of that was out of necessity rather than design, but it was really incredible to do everything from costing menus to obviously working the till and making sure counting the cash at the end of the day. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, engaging with our guests when they arrived.
1: Was this still at three or was this actually, <laughs> I'm just thinking, wow, well, you're, a, you're a smart three, right? You had a lot more going on than me. Yeah, oh, I
0: reckon <laughs> he waited until I could add two and two for me to cost the menus. Um, but certainly, from a very early age uh you know being involved in the restaurant and it was you know very much a family business as a lot of small businesses are um and it was a case of not seeing my dad a lot um because he obviously worked very hard the restaurant was open seven days a week and as we know for lunch and dinner that doesn't leave much time in between Mm. so uh you know we basically wanted to see my parents came down and got involved
1: have you sat back and reflected and gone, wow, that family of origin, the connection? I never knew that. Like I knew you were from South Africa, and I was excited to talk to you. Like, I, I always love catching up with you. But in a podcast, we get to go a little bit deeper and pull on a few threads. So I didn't realize that. But have you sat back and actually gone, wow, that little three-year-old girl who wanted to connect with dad, and now she's serving 71 million meals across Australia?
0: No, but that's always a good thing about talking to you, Andrew, because you cause real-time reflection in the chair, don't you? <laughs> well,
1: it's a big thing, right? Like from the three-year-old doing the till and um, having yeah. balance like sheets. Yeah, to... I mean,
0: I think probably my reflection had gone as deep previously as how is it that I'm so comfortable talking to people? I love walking to room and meeting new people. Um, and I think that's just because it was an everyday occurrence um, and was really just part of my upbringing.
1: Yeah. So school life in South Africa, what was it like?
0: Look, I I grew up in the apartheid era. Um, I went to a very progressive school. In fact, at one stage, our principal was jailed because we sang Kosi Sikilele before it became the national anthem in our school hall. And that was outlawed. Um, So I had the opportunity to do a number of cultural exchange programs, which was really eye-opening. I lived in a township for a while on one of the cultural exchange programs. So school in South Africa was very different depending on the type of school you went to and what opportunities your school wanted to create around integration. Um, But I was incredibly privileged to actually have those opportunities. And I think that really helped me to see the injustice and the inequity. Mm. And that's something that really drives me today. Um, I remember at the age of six, uh, being in a bus with my dad, and one of the days he was off. (laughs) And he took us to an ice rink, because of course, he was Austrian. So he wanted to teach us to ice skate. And we got on the bus and he said, no, Shelley, you can't sit there. And I said, Why? And he said, "That's the black section," and that really, really struck with me. I mean, as I say it, I can still actually see that experience playing out in front of me. Um, And so, you know, I think that's been something that really, really drives me, um, which is to create inclusive places, whether that's a community or workplace, um, because that part of my upbringing I'm not in any way proud of, Um, and it's something that I suppose you know I've always wanted to to remediate in the rest of my life.
1: So how did you end up here? Like not here because your office is up the road <laughs> and we saw each other when you were walking here. But how did you end up in Australia?
0: So I um, started exploring my options internationally um, and went into my chartered accounting qualification in London. We'd actually nearly immigrated to Australia as a family when we were um, when I was younger. Um, and then because my dad had the small business, that wasn't really possible. Um, one of the challenges with South Africa is when you accumulate assets in South Africa, you can't readily exchange them and travel because they're not worth as much. And so my family chose not to emigrate. Um but it always was on the cards for me. So I thought I'd come here through KPMG actually <laughs> on some um, Did you come here
1: through K We were at KPMG. No, so
0: I I in the end went through KPMG and then went to EasyJet. Um as you mentioned earlier and had an amazing time there and um Ended up, you know, what was just a short term stint. Ended up being four years, um, and eventually, I'd applied for my residency. And if I hadn't taken it up, I would have lost it. And so no. I was like, right, come on, John, my husband, uh, we need to commit to this. Let's, um, let's go to Australia now. Never look back.
1: Craig Tiley, the CEO of Tennis Australia, is a South African. Have you met Craig? I haven't met him, no. It's it's one of those questions. Oh, he's from South Africa. I'm sure you've met. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Craig said something very similar to you. He was very much influenced as a young child and saw apartheid Mm. and what was happening and just thought, I'm going to make a difference when I get the opportunity. So a a number of the the principles he has making Tennis Australia, which is now known as the world's best tennis event, comes from wanting to have diversity, inclusion and not having anyone on the outside. So very interesting hearing some of those parallels mm. that you and Craig have. I'll have to connect you two. You've got some very similar philosophies. I'd like to jump into work on that when you apply that to Compass Group, and as I mentioned before, you know, 71 million meals, you've got 615 sites, 11,000 employees. You would be influencing, you would be impacting millions of Australian lives, just the employees and their immediate families. So how do you think about diversity and inclusion in your organization with Compass, but also the wider net that you have?
0: So we're very privileged at Compass because we actually work in other corporates' workplaces and in other enterprises' communities. So whether that's in a corporate environment, like we provide catering services, NAB, um, in their workplace, or whether that's in a hospital um, where our team provide the catering and the um, cleaning services. So we... The way we think about inclusion is it's not just about our team. It's actually about that community that our team are working in. And so very much working in partnership with our clients to focus on inclusion and work on it together. So standing shoulder to shoulder, working together to create that community as being an inclusive community.
1: Mm -hmm. Are you able to give us an example of an organisation that you've worked with? And and if if you If you can't, I'll go to another question because I've actually flipped the interview. I was going to ask you about physical and psychological resilience. So we'll keep that open loop as well. You're going to have to remind me of all these open
0: loops. (laughs) But when you started
1: talking about South Africa, I could see the change in you. I thought, we've got to go into work now.
0: Yeah. Look, I think the one that's really front of mind, I've just come back from, um, now that the borders have opened, I've just come back traveling from Western Australia, South Australia and Queensland, and I've been visiting a number of our mine sites there. And we have an amazing partnership with BHP, where we have decided together that we're going to change the industry. We know that the past behaviour in mining camps in male-dominated environments has been unacceptable, and we know that not you know often people are disrespected in that environment, and so that's something we have set a to work on in partnership. So it's incredible working on specific initiatives to look at how we make the communities more accessible to everyone and particularly talking about gender equity. And so we're doing things like, for example, um, integrating different menu options, uh, we're providing different activities in the camp, so it's not just a case of going to the tavern and that's all that's on offer. We've got yoga, we've got sports programs, we've got evening activities. We've even got a cooking kitchen, would you believe it, that provides cooking classes. And you know, it's really I think about understanding where it started was we just did a gap analysis and we did some focus groups and we said to people living in these communities, why, is, what's not working for you, and what's working? What would we need to do to create inclusive communities? And really, from that, we've built. Initiatives and it's a lot of hard work, but I have to say the work is paying off. We certainly um, have a, a diverse workforce, um, but we have to constantly, you know, talk about respectful behaviours because it's something that's not yet normalised. Um, but if we keep talking about it, we keep destigmatizing it, and we keep drawing on the allies. Of of people who see sexual harassment to respond and talk about it, then we will make a significant step forward.
1: Mm. And one of the things I was very unaware of until we started doing some work together is you don't just do food services with compass groups. So if you're out in, say, Karatha, you you provide menus and food. But with FIFA, fly in, fly out, you then do facilities. So you do gym management, you do cleaning, you do heaps of other stuff. So it's a it's a full-on enterprise. Out in some very remote areas.
0: That's right, and I mean it presents amazing challenges: the logistical challenges, the employment challenges, uh, working in indigenous communities, and and paying respect to their land and their traditions and their customs. Um, we're very proud to have a workforce um, that 8% of our 11,000 team members are Indigenous and we've worked very closely with them to onboard them um, and to help them integrate into those communities. That's a
1: massive, massive impact. Are you ever at night... Just going, oh, the simplicity of having a restaurant in South Africa. <laughs> was it an Austrian <laughs> restaurant? One side as yeah, opposed yeah, to I know.
0: 615? Was yeah. it an
1: Austrian restaurant? <laughs> I don't, I've i got to ask. What sort of restaurant was it? Was it
0: was a seafood restaurant, actually. Okay,
1: schnitzel. Yeah. <laughs> well, of that. course,
0: there was Wiener schnitzel on the menu and Apfelstrudel and, you know, yeah. all those good Austrian traditions. <laughs> but do you ever
1: have that? Do you ever just have any awaking moment or you're on a plane now, we're starting to travel a little bit and just go... Oh, this is a big, big responsibility.
0: I think, um, I think what that experience taught me, as I said earlier in the podcast, was really um, to understand our customers deeply. And when you understand your customers, you realise, well, actually there are groups of customers. So yes, of course, not every miner is like every minor, not every healthcare worker is like every other healthcare worker. But you can actually, um, what we do is we, we develop personas um, and then really understanding how our, products and our services can best meet those needs. I suppose at its most basic level, I'm hugely intrigued by human behaviour and by understanding people and why they want what they want and why when you service them, what satisfies them and what doesn't. So I think what the scale does is it brings you the opportunity to study that even more deeply and it it gives you the opportunity to, to study that at a population level. I mean, as you said, you know, 71 million meals. You would have eaten Compass food a number of times as mm. you already, <laughs> and not know it. Well, I've it. been eating it
1: for years. I just didn't know that you were feeding me.
0: <laughs> and that's because we obviously work, you know, with our clients, and it's their brand that that goes to the front of of the wonderful hospitality experience or whatever it is that we're co creating with them. But yeah, I mean, I think I think of the the scale as an opportunity rather than a challenge. And I think coming back to one of those open loops that you've set up there, I think the impact we can have on health and wellbeing education is phenomenal. You take, you know, we service 54,000 miners every night in our mining camps. They have the opportunity to experience food nutrition every day in every meal. Um, part of our service is to say um, is eat some more or less. And so we're guiding people towards choices that are going to be more healthy for them. So when they are out of that environment they their home with their families, they can actually take that skill and that education back to them. So we think not only about you know the people we impact directly by serving them food, we actually think about their families and their relatives and how we can have reach into those communities.
1: And you have a whole team of Compass employees who are nutritionists and workplace experts and have done occupational health and safety and education and, and psychologists. digital learning and psychologists <laughs> and the list goes on. Which is really, it's, it's diverse. It really is. So it's a whole integrated, you know, we're not just feeding, we're educating, we're, it's, it's, you're, you're creating communities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's how, that's how we see it. We're not just there to provide a meal. We're actually there to give someone a life skill um, and whether that's about them. I mean, we've had amazing case studies through our health and wellbeing programs where people have dropped Dropped their body mass index, they've increased their sleep, they've become healthier people. Mm. Um, and so it's really incredible for us to feel part of that and to be offering that um, and creating life changing experiences for people.
1: What's one of the biggest mistakes you think you've made individually or as a group in the last few years? And what did that teach you?
0: I always feel like, and you laugh at this because it goes back to the start, I, I always feel as a bigger organization, you want to move at speed. And so, you know, you, you embark, on change. And I think one of the things working in so many different work environments is to drive that change right through to the person at the front who is delivering that service is a massive undertaking. And I think as an organisation, sometimes we underestimate the change management effort that's required to actually get it right through the line, you know, all those seven degrees of separation, particularly when you're dealing with a national business and you've got someone in the middle of the Pilbara, you know, how do you, influence that person who's serving that dish on that day or, um, you know, cleaning an air conditioning unit on that day. And so I think that's one of the challenges we constantly grapple with is is going deep versus going broad.
1: Mm. And, and you are passionate. Like you walk into a, lo- a room and the room lights up. We've got lights in here <laughs> anyway. I would said to Thomas, dial them down. Shelly's coming. Uh, do you ever find there's a gap because with a number of small business owners we we hear this and I see this as well sometimes with my leadership style you know you're passionate you're doing this and and you look around and people are looking at you going oh just slow down guys slow down girls do, do you ever see that in people around you because of your energy and, and and the learning I'm trying to get for small business owners is we can sometimes be so passionate wanting yeah. to go so quick that yeah slowing down in order to speed up or slowing down in order to connect and, and, and make sure other people are going the journey with you. Yep. So how do you do yep. that?
0: So explaining what's going on in my head, basically, and I, it's it's almost something I've learned to deliberately pause and bring people on the journey because I will join the dots so quickly and I'll be ready. I'll see an opportunity. I'll want to start mobilizing towards it, but I haven't yet actually had the opportunity to share those dots with other people so that they can join them. And then it becomes my idea as opposed to them joining the dots and it becoming their idea. So I think that's something that I've had to learn. I think the only point I would make there around other people um, perhaps in in a business is if you're joined up in terms of your purpose and what you're really there to do together, then I think you've got that baseline connectivity then it just becomes a case of having a discussion around an incremental opportunity that arose. So I think having alignment around purpose, having alignment around strategy, and having all of your team on board with that gives you that pivot point um, to accelerate from.
1: You mentioned three words, pause, join the dots, and going on the new journey. So let's go back. Uh, the date was, it's deeply etched in my mind, <laughs> Friday 13th of March. And I was in Jaroa writing what I thought was going to be my next book on productivity. It's now on dimensions of well-being and how that can influence your immunity and change workforces. But back then it was on productivity. We didn't know COVID was coming. And, and, and I was sitting there and I literally saw a roadshow, which in my keynote speaking world is when I had eight bookings across Australia and New Zealand. It dropped out of my diary. I was like, Oh, I think I rang the office and, and said, "Did you just change my diary?" Erin said no, and then I knew what had happened because we were t- being told it's coming, it's coming. it yeah. closed in China, or a lot of other countries. Uh, at the airports were starting to close, and I lost for, for me, which was about one hundred and twenty plus thousand dollars. And then I got the phone call yeah. from the bureau saying, "Look, Andrew, we're not going ahead with it." And I just knew our old business model was decimated. Yeah. There were three people I sought counsel the following day. You were one of them. Martin Shepard from KPMG and David Lindbergh, who is now over at NatWest Bank running their retail branch, so running their, their, their whole retail bank. And I was wide-eyed. Oh my God, I knew it was going to come. And then I rang you. And do you remember what you said to me?
0: I said, "Andrew, What are you this- doing ringing
1: on a Saturday? So once you got over there. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah,
0: exactly. Because you told you me i will just take my balance. weekends off. I think yeah. we were all working Saturdays and Sundays. I think what I said to you was this is the moment for Strive Stronger because people are going to need your service. You just have to go digital. <laughs> so I want to thank you because
1: I feel all um – sort of get goosebumps when you say that because you would you back me uh, yeah. and I, I think you really have to you should acknowledge the people along the way and you made a massive difference your counsel then thank you you just didn't tell me how much work it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> digitising because you know, I've said openly on this podcast before we lost 93% of revenue but talking to you talking to Dave talking to Martin it, it just gave me comfort that we had some great people first who ran great companies second helping us in, in where we were going to go with our business digitising of which this program is part, but with Compass. When that happened, just think of the enormity of our little world. Just think of your world. How did you, how did you frame that? How did you get out of the circus that was going on and just get above and reflect? How did you survive in that yeah. immediate period?
0: I mean, the first initial stage was less about money and profit actually and way more about people because with 11,000 people and knowing our people so well, what it was going to mean to them um, if they were a casualty member and they couldn't work, it was really about, okay, where are our people? Which sites have shut down? Which sites are still going? Okay, are they going at 10% capacity, 50% capacity? And so really getting it. A view of the landscape so we could understand how we were going to support our team through this. And through that, I think, came many opportunities because we started um, getting reach outs and we reached out in turn to say to organizations, we can help, we have people. So to give you an example, New South Wales Health, it's logical they were going to be preparing. They're not actually a client of ours, they're actually insourced, but it was logical they were going to be looking for surge resources. And so I immediately reached out. In fact, it was Saturday morning, probably before or after I'd called you. And I said, hey, just to let you know, we have people, they already have their police checks, they're already trained, they perform these services, we can have them ready to go, you know, tomorrow morning or Monday morning. And we had amazing stories in the end. We helped New South Wales Health pack PPE. Um, We stepped into the Victorian aged care crisis by setting up a central production kitchen when all the chefs at insourced sites fell over and we had to really just – we got a phone call one day at 12 o'clock to feed dinner at 5 o'clock. Um, You know, we we were able to do that. We stepped in and helped the um, crew on the Ruby Princess who went into lockdown um, because they obviously needed to be fed in in lockdown. And this amazing sense of purpose in terms of our organization just came through. There was not one person I asked to do one thing. And many of the calls were happening 11 o'clock at night, one o'clock in the morning, Saturdays, Sundays, as you say. But everybody just knew that we were mobilizing to save people work. Mm. And it became about jobs. So I can tell you today um, in the hotel quarantine program in Sydney where um, we we provide, we've in fact provided over 1.3 million meals to date, there are 200 people employed in that operation. That wasn't there a year ago but that has come from um, taking the opportunities as they arose and being motivated by continuing to keep people in work. Mm.
1: Another one that you have left off your list, which is expansive, is when the borders closed, the first time in over 100 years The New South Wales and Queensland borders closed, yeah. everyone was panicking. All my friends in banking going, oh, God, I'm in Melbourne, I've got to get back to Sydney. Or Sydney and Melbourne and then South Australian border and how are we going to get across? And What did you do in that time?
0: Yeah, well, we really came to the aid of the Defence Force who stepped in and they had police borders and they stood up police forces on those borders and, of course, where people are, they need food. Um, And so we had people mobilised from across the country um, to provide those Border Patrol forces uh, food and meals and, and keep them nourished.
1: So if I go back to the three-year-old in your dad's seafood restaurant with an Austrian background serving some schnitzel, sounds like a really nice hybrid in South Africa. Your purpose from a young age, it was implanted. It was to serve and, and to fuel other people. And it's now powering your entire business. Did you have any moments in that period where you just went, oh, I don't think we're going to get through? I did. I actually had a moment. I had a pity party. It was mid to late April, um, and you know, Sophia, had gorgeous baby girl, was just about to come and to, to arrive in this world. And I caught up with my mate Mario, and I just said, "I don't think I can do it." And I and I, I did. I, I moped around for a day, went for a bike ride on the Sunday morning, and thought, "I you the know, pity party." The only people that are going to be around is me and my mum, and then mum's going to get sick of me, and I snapped out of it. But I had it for about a day and a half. Did you have a pity party?
0: You did well uh, with just a day and a half there, Andrew. I think um, I did a lot of reach out to my peers and my, my network just to go, "This is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm doing. How are you seeing it? What are you doing?" And actually what was really refreshing about that was everybody dropped their ego mm. <laughs> and everybody said I don't know and there was this complete sort of sense of we're in this together we're muddling through and 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 willingness to share ideas Um, and I found that really inspiring actually. So yes, there were absolutely moments, probably fatigue more than anything else. I mean, certainly the Andrew May book of, you know, put your phone down at the weekends and create space and I broke all those rules. All that kind of stuff. It just didn't apply last year, right? But actually I remember talking to you about three months in and you said, Shelley, just remember to put on your oxygen mask first. Um, And that still sticks with me because I think you realise initially you're going to overdrive because you've got all these people and 11,000 people are counting on me and I can't go to sleep now because 11,000 people, you know, need to be rostered for work tomorrow. And eventually you realise you're starting to come to the end of your reserves and Mm -hmm. your stores. Um, And had I not put on my oxygen mask first, we wouldn't have been able to go on and do all the great things that we did do, as well as obviously my team because, of course, if I'm, you know, calling someone there's someone else on the other end of the line and so for their sake too so i think that um yes we did have those moments but but i think actually my overriding memory is is the the opportunity to engage with colleagues peers and clients in in such a co-creational way um that just left new new waters uncharted mm.
1: interesting uh, you you purposely use those words without ego and I saw that a lot as well, that you saw a lot of leaders who in the past, men and women who were afraid to be vulnerable because they thought vulnerability was a weakness rather than a strength, actually acknowledging, we don't know, I don't know, but, but what are you seeing? What are your data points? How do we work on this together? It, it, in many ways, it brought companies, sectors, competitors, non-competitors together closer than ever?
0: I think because the psychological safety around not needing to have an answer, if you think about it, when we're all working off paradigms that have been tried and tested and we're leading organisations and we've got profit targets to meet, we're always expected to be able to have an answer. But this was such a big global phenomenon and everybody was saying, we don't know. It became psychologically safe to say, I don't know. And so my challenge being International Women's Day is, you know, what will we dare to challenge ourselves on going forward? Because I do see that ego creeping back in again and I see us feeling like we need to have answers again. But to be honest, it's as uncertain as it was last year. You know, we don't know what's going to happen next. And I think feeling comfortable to be vulnerable in that uncertainty – rather than needing to profess that we've constantly got all the answers, I think is something wonderful that we can actually all take out of this. Mm. And
1: theres there's been loads of media about how bad COVID was. There's been loads of airplay about you know, the, the tragedies at the start and the small businesses, big businesses. It has had some change. And I don't want to be sort of flipping on that because I know some people through no fault of their own haven't been able to get back to you know, remotely like they were. But there's also post-traumatic growth. Mm. And if you, you know three words, post – trauma and growth. So, what have you learned from that challenging period? So, you see the digitization of businesses. You see uh, companies looking at uh, how do we cut back cost basis? How do we be more innovative? So, there are some really positives out of this as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that old approach of we'll do a diagnostic, then we'll write a business case, then we'll do a small trial, then you know, three years later you're still umming and airing about did it work, didn't it work? Whereas this is the greatest experiment that ever existed. And I know other people have said that, but I think if we look at that that process and we say how do we carry that forward? How do we become better at failing fast and being comfortable with that and, and learning and trying new things because the post traumatic growth, the you know, the growth part of it is reliant on us continuing to thrive and grow and challenge and experiment Um, and i think if we get locked down too quickly in compliance and concerns um we don't create enough space for those things to happen Mm.
1: do you think we'll find a happy medium
0: well i'm an optimist so yes (laughs) (laughs) i think um you know i think what will that happy medium look like though i think that um as 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 corporates and, and perhaps you know, thinking about small businesses, it's something I envy actually in a small business. In fact, we want to partner more with small businesses being a larger organization because we see them as being agile and nimble and being led by leaders who've got that personal attachment to the mission of, of that particular thing that they're trying to grow I think that as small businesses um, you've got everything to offer and I think looking for opportunities to collaborate and partner with larger organizations I think is going to be a big theme because that way you can keep the mothership going and you can you know be be conservative around that but at the same time you can really experiment with smaller businesses um, and and just get an opportunity to unlock. New growth
1: and a lot of small business owners as well. They've got the bunsen burner on the backside. You know I Meaning, <laughs> if you don't move quickly, if you if you don't put plans into place, you have yep. no revenue. So you are forced to be innovative. You are forced to go to the market quick. Yeah, um, but that and that's also... something
0: I think large corporates can learn absolutely from from yeah. small businesses. And
1: small business can be more strategic and look at ongoing revenue sources, whether it's subscription models or not just the sort of exchange, uh, monetary exchange and then stop, monetary exchange and stop. And I know we're looking at a lot of that now as well well. But I'm curious with small business, the impact that Compass must have first on small businesses and second, what did you see happening with small business in your ecosystem?
0: Yeah. So look, we're very mindful about bringing small business with us because with 71 million meals, you can just imagine we might go to some suppliers and say, hey, can we have food for 71 million meals? And they'll go, well, I'd love to, but we're just a local bakery. So we very much, particularly our indigenous businesses, we have worked with them and incubated them. Um, at the moment, we are um, working with Wadi Water and Coffee, um, and they're an organization that have come from, you know, just, I don't know, a few thousand liters of, of water a year. And three years later, you know, they're serving most of our portfolio And what they do is they actually pay that forward and they're actually um, investing in solar panels to distill water, to purify water in remote communities. So it's not just about us working with them and that first ripple in the pond. It's actually about creating second and third ripples in the pond. So, you know, really I think with small businesses – finding larger businesses to work with in partnership and it's not an easy journey because we have very significant compliance obligations you know we've got many boxes to tick but actually if you start out on a common vision and a shared vision you can actually get there three years later. Hi, we hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on Nab Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au/businessfit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business.
1: 71 million meals, there would be a huge amount of providers right across Australia. And and also, Compass, you're you're massive in Asia Pacific and massive globally. 45
0: countries. 45 (laughs) countries. 600,000 staff. (laughs)
1: It's huge, right? Huge. But, But bring it back to Australia. Yeah. That's a lot of small business owners in lots of regional areas.
0: Yeah, and I think we were particularly pleased to partner with Defence um, through COVID because they were very mindful of supporting the local communities, and so we integrated suppliers from those local communities you might not have worked with before. In fact, Mr. Whippy, <laughs> where we had Mr. Whippy vans visit all of the Defence sites across the whole Eastern Seaboard, was one of the most popular um, things that we've done. Might not fit with the health and wellbeing trend, though. Just wait, 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 wait.
1: I've got the the music in the, in the mind, so you sent Mr. Whippy into all the health, into the defence areas?
0: Yes. Yes. Nice. We made sure they had salad for lunch before that, though. Of course you did. <laughs> no, look, I'm
1: taking off my judgmental health and wellbeing hat. Um, what was the feedback on that?
0: Oh, amazing. I think people just loved the fact that together, us and Defence were supporting a man with a van, you know, Mr. Whippy, because you can imagine during COVID and lockdown, playgrounds were closed. Yeah. You know, there were lots of places that Mr. Whippy couldn't go. And so the fact that we were bringing them into the defence base to, um, you know, see hundreds of of people delighted in ice cream. Um, and I think, you know, again, during COVID, we just needed that joy, right? We needed that sense of, wow, let's just uplift our spirit today.
1: There's something about that music and we'll, we'll add <laughs> the music into this podcast. We'll get Wizard to add it in. Um, I'll tell you a traumatic Mr. Whippy story. One of my best friends, his elder sister, told her kids when they were young that when Mr. Whippy played music, he was out of ice cream. Oh, oh that's, that's cruel. Terrible. I <laughs> tried telling my kids that and they saw all the other kids running up with ice cream. On them and they like, Dad, we know he's got ice cream. So um, I thought that was a very funny story. Meanwhile, I
0: was thinking that's good. Mr. Whippy can go home for the day. He's made his profit and his <laughs> revenue.
1: <laughs> so what else did you do apart from Mr. Whippy or how else did you sort of step back and think how do we support small business owners?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it can be everything from, you know, health and well-being providers that we worked with, like Strive Stronger, to actually think about how we can co-market our products together, how we can actually um, take their services to our clients. So, you know, one of the things is as, as corporates come back into the office, you can imagine there are a whole lot of retail outlets on the ground floor that that aren't necessarily getting the custom. We've got the uh, function area and and we've got the kitchen inside the building. So we're trying to work with those retail outlets on the basement and actually integrate them into our offering so that for our customers, it's convenient. You can come and you can enjoy compass food, or you might be able to enjoy, I'm going to quote another uh, ice cream (laughs) option, um, you know, and and really create moments and experiences. Um, So I think, as you said earlier, you know, people saw what traditionally being considered competition, working together for the greater good. Because at the end of the day, you're really just trying to make the most of the revenue that's there and actually see how you can collaborate.
1: And I imagine as big companies especially are trying to get people back because they're this real grey area at the moment, like what days do we go into work? Can yeah. we WFA? Can we work from anywhere? Yeah. How do you have a team culture if you're only in the office one or two days a week? Yeah. Um, why do I want to go into work? You know, I've been wearing tracksuit pants and yoga wear and Zoom meetings are okay if I get up every now and then. So I, I can see what you're doing as well, really helping yeah. create that, that safety at work, but also a yeah. reason to go back to work.
0: Yeah, well, we recently did a study of 800 consumers and 70 of our clients and what that study said was, first of all, people need to feel safe about coming back into the workplace. But then when they come back into the workplace, they really want there to be a reason for them to be there as opposed to just sitting, you know, and participating in a meeting on Zoom. So the way we now think of it is, you know, previously we'd open the doors of the cafe and, you know, there'd be a menu and we'd serve food for the day. We now consider ourselves to be almost like concierges and we're curating experiences And you might come to me and say, I've got a team building activity today, haven't seen my team, you know, want to talk about something. And I'll give you a great example. I went to the Perth office um, two weeks ago and I hadn't seen the team there for 14 months. And so we actually had an event in our training academy and we had two speakers come along who were mental health speakers and they talked about their own battles uh, with mental health and how they've built their resilience. In fact, this one guy was a surfer and he would got caught in the undertow for 45 seconds and then two months later, um, being with someone who'd got bitten by a shark and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of, (laughs) a lot of experience to recover from. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's more about, I think also integrating, um, those experiences with purpose. So it's no longer just about providing great food. It's actually about let's integrate that with an Indigenous experience or bushfires. You know, we've got an amazing cheese provider who has rebuilt their business after the bushfires in New South, South Wales. How can we actually showcase their food at a client entertainment event um, and thereby, you know, bring some benefit back to the community that, that that provider is from?
1: How do you come up with ideas? How do you stay creative? How do you tap your brain for innovation?
0: I think um, the most important thing I would say is it's completely decentralized. So all of our site teams work with their teams on site to ideate. You know, we just had our flight center team last week ran the Amazing Race. So they took the Amazing Race concept and they adapted it um, for what they wanted to do with their client as a team building event. So rather than, you know, sitting there with an innovation team trying to churn out ideas, we just... It, it's just organic. Um, and I think to small businesses as well, like, you know, you guys will know how that how wonderful that is and how motivating that is for the team when they've got an idea and you back an idea. Um, so, yeah.
1: And a, a, an open loop that we will bring back into the conversation <laughs> to close, because I don't want people listening to this going, he left so many open loops. And <laughs> the, the one at the start was about looking after yourself, putting your oxygen mask on first. Yeah. I, I'm going to uh, get the metaphoric, Rubber out and 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 wipe the whiteboard because I know a lot about what you do, so I'm going to try and ask from a non-biased approach, <laughs> pretending I know <laughs> nothing about bias, what you unconscious bias. Let's do. see it play out. No unconscious bias. <laughs> uh, how do you look after your physical well-being?
0: So um, I was on the program. Uh, oh gosh, five years ago now, actually, and and it was it did change my life um, because what I realised in that program was that my energy was my asset. And before that, I thought my energy was boundless. I had unlimited amounts of energy and I could just throw myself into anything at any point at any time. And, you know, what I learned there first and foremost was to think about my peak performance moments, think about where do I want to direct my energy so that it's going to have the best effect. And so the first thing I do is to think about my week. Um, This would be a performance moment, for example. Hopefully, I'm bringing the energy Um, and, you know, not get caught up in that when I'm at my peak going through my emails. Um, so whether for, you know, for me, that's I'm at my peak really in the morning, it means towards the afternoon, late afternoon, I'll do my emails. Um, also bringing balance with my home life. Um, so whether that's my physical fitness and going for a run or whether that's seeing the kids and having quality time with the kids. I think I'm now much more intentional around that, much more mindful around that. Um, I, got my better week where I try to plan to, you know, no more than one evening out in the week so I can put the kids to bed. Um, and, and yeah, I think ultimately being more intentional, um, and knowing, having done that, seeing how it worked for me, I felt so much calmer. I felt so much more grounded. I, f- I could see that the value I could bring was so much more because I wasn't trying to scattergun my Energy all over the place. So now this is
1: conscious bias.
0: <laughs>
1: you or oh, we totally changed the way you exercise because you're yep. like a lot of people that I work with. So the program you did was our, well, my coaching program. Yeah. And I said stop running all the time. So we yep. you know you do weights, you do yoga, you do interval training, you do resistance yep. training. So we totally shook up the physical part. Yeah. You're still running.
0: Abs- well, yes, <laughs> I managed to get to 14 k's, Andrew, and then I bust my calf muscles. So I've been told that I've got to not run for three weeks. But I've decided I'm going to make it my upper body uh, month. (laughs) 14Ks? Yeah, yeah. I was quite pleased with that, actually.
1: How'd you do the calf?
0: Uh, I don't know. I was just running and probably hadn't warmed up well enough. And then I decided to run it out. So I can strongly suggest that- we, uh,
1: <laughs> We'll have a chat offline, Shelley. You don't run out of tight calf. Have you been wearing high heels much lately before you did this?
0: Only to see you today, Andrew.
1: Okay. No, because it is, like is. I'm not non biased, but men or women wear high heels. Your calves are in extension and yep. they, they become tight as well. So we've found a few of our female clients have said they've had more niggles recently. Well, maybe after working right? from
0: home, right? Because you suddenly went back to heels. Exactly. Yep that's probably it.
1: Yeah. Psychological, uh, mental skills. There's a lot of stuff I know you do. Yeah. Let our listeners know some of the things you've learned around breathing, around the inner voice, self-talk, getting ready for some pre-performance moments. You've got a whole toolkit now that you use.
0: Yeah. So I think the first really is creating that space so that you're not running from one thing into the next. So if you've got a peak performance moment, having the opportunity to have that downtime, I mean, even just coming here in the Uber, I decided not to sit there and just, you know, chug through my inbox, but to actually look out the window and just think about, okay, what what do I want to bring to this? Um, And I think so often, you know, we just run from one thing to the next thing. It takes us the first 10 minutes in the next meeting to to still be digesting what happened in the last 10 minutes of the previous meeting. So creating those pause moments, Uh, definitely breathing. Um, That really helped me. I had um, two very similar meetings a day after one another, and I think I saw you in the morning. And that afternoon, I did the breathing before I went into the to meeting, and it was a completely different meeting for me. Um, So definitely doing the box breathing. So I can remember you being a little (laughs) bit more vocal on that. You said,
1: you know, the the one meeting you prepared for and you were calm, you were ready. It it was like you knew what was coming, and the other one you came from, I forget what it was, but one thing straight into it, and like you got whacked. Yeah, and that was a great coaching moment for you to go. While these things are little things, controlling that psychological state, mental skills, it's just like learning to write or touch type or play a sport or cook. Once you learn them, they give you an advantage.
0: Yeah. So the one I'm still working on, Andrew, is being present. (laughs) Because once I've done all that, you get home and you know, this morning, what was it, a quarter to nine? I can't find my library books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I got a text message this morning at 9.30 from my gorgeous daughter. Dad, can you bring my laptop and my French book? I'm like, um, yeah. me, me, like where, where are they? I left them at home on the bench because yeah. we left so quick. Like, I'm like, yeah, darling, yeah, I've you got, you got a busy day. <laughs> so, yeah, I can't help. <laughs> How do you juggle that? How do you juggle being super executive but also being mum, being a you know, partner, being community friend?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm sure anyone you speak to would say they feel they could do better at all of that. Um, I think probably um, creating the the time and planning in the time. So creating time, you know, even if it's going for a walk with John um, so that we just get that time to connect. We did that this morning because I was travelling like crazy over the last three weeks. Um, taking a few days off every now and again to spend together as well. Um, and then the kids, um, you know, it's, um, I suppose just a case of, of, of working with them and supporting them. Um, I try to put Abby to bed as much as I can at night and that's her time for talking. So, you know, sometimes 90 minutes of it, (laughs) whatever's going on in the playground. Um, but, uh, you know, having, being available to them, I think, um, and, you know, when they imitate you and mock you on the phone, you know then you know you're not quite getting it right. So the cues are there, Andrew. You just have to listen to them.
1: <laughs> they are. How you hear those horror stories where the uh, parents go to school and the kids get up and say, hi, my name's Jonathan or hi, my name's Cherie and my parents do email and meetings. <laughs> <Yeah>. You don't <laughs> want to be vocation. one of those, do you? Yeah, you email don't want to be one meetings. of those. So you're hugely resilient Uh, is that just optimism or have you trained that in other areas? Like, Have you you had some hardships in your life? Are there some things you look back at and go, my God, that was tough, but I learned from that?
0: Yeah, I think um, I would say predominantly optimism because I see the adversity as an opportunity to get better, do something better. Um, It's just an outlook and mindset thing. I mean, yeah, there've been challenges along the road, but I've always tried to look at, well, what's the worst thing that could happen here? So, for example, when I was 21 and moved to London on my own, um, that was a big step, right, to leave home and your first move out of home and go and live in London from South Africa. But I made sure I had enough money in my bank account for an airfare. Now that wouldn't get you very far today (laughs) with water closures and things. But, you know, I knew psychologically that my safety net was there, that if I needed to pull it, I could just buy a ticket and go home. And so I always try to try to take that approach, which is what's the worst thing that could happen and then manage that risk. And that allows me to then step into I call it the ring of fire and go, Okay, well therefore, I'm safe over there. Now let me extend and, and do this.
1: How did you learn that? Was that a course? Was it a book? Was
0: I have it- no idea. I'm sure there was another Andrew May in my life who who taught me that. Um, I honestly can't remember. But from a very I remember from a very young age thinking like that might have even been something in my dad's business I'm sure he I mean I know in a small business being a seasonal catering business you know through the winter he was always on overdraft so I don't know whether you know it was him talking to me about his financing for the business that and he always explained to me how he managed that and so in summer he would put away enough money to manage the overdraft in winter kind of thing um so yeah I don't don't know
1: (laughs) So I'll when, discover
0: that um, on the couch one day.
1: When you look back uh, from a career point of view, what are you most proud of?
0: I think um, the just the being part of something. So whether that was EasyJet, um, you know, commoditizing travel in Europe so that people could fly everywhere on, you know, 10-pound fares and go and see their family more frequently than they had before, or whether that's in Australia, you know, at Sydney Airport, creating a great um, experience, um, building closer relationships between the airport and the airlines, um, or whether that's Compass, um, doing the work we do in the communities that we serve. Um, I, I couldn't point to one thing, but I, I always try to think about can I make a difference, can I make an impact, and that's what, what really motivates and drives me. And
1: what about in your personal life?
0: Obviously my children. <laughs> Abigail's nine now. Um, she's absolutely amazing. Um, she would you believe it loves cooking. Um and so she actually, since COVID, has taken up baking on a Saturday morning with her grandmother in the UK over Skype. Oh nice. So that's entertainment for her grand in the UK who's locked into her house obviously in isolation. Um, and it's obviously great skills development for Abby as well and then Alex is my six-year-old um, and he's just incredible he's uh, incredible sportsman um, I just went to watch his soccer on Saturday and he scored two goals so go Alex <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you light up when you talk about your work but you light up at a different level when you talk about your kids
0: yeah I mean I think you know always say that ultimately they're our proudest achievement. And and what's exciting about that is there's so much more to go, right? I mean, one day, who knows what Abigail's going to be? Who knows what Alex is going to be? And I think, you know, just to end off on International Women's Day, the message I shared with Abigail this morning is, Abigail, you can be anything you want to be. How awesome is it that we now live in a world where – we can teach our children that they can have whatever they want Mm. if they work towards it.
1: You close that out beautifully. I I thought you said there's so much more to go. I thought you were going to have more kids. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) We're done on that one, Andrew. Is there anything you're not telling me? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Crystal Ball, uh, looking ahead for you, we used to say three- to five-year plans, but it's really hard to project five years, but let's say a couple of years. What, What would you like to be doing?
0: what would I like to be doing? I think, um, personally, yeah, I mean, I think continuing to, to lead, continuing to grow, continuing to push boundaries. Um, I hate talking about job descriptions and titles because I think, you know, so often you can be attracted to an organization or a title and then find that it's not at all what you thought it was. For me, the most important thing is that I'm able to make a unique contribution towards something. Um, and as long as I continue to be valuable and, and I can, you know, provide that value, that's, that's what's exciting to me.
1: Mm. Crystal ball for your industry. And I'm going to have to mm. give you a little bit more detail because your industry, you're in defence, you're in consulting, you're in yeah. telcos, you're in banks, yeah. you're in mining, you're in energy. So, But, but specifically for your industry, yeah, uh, where do you see it going or where do you think it needs to go?
0: I think the exciting thing about COVID has been the recognition that our frontline workers have received. So cleaners in hospitals, cleaners in mining camps, Um, you know, for the first time, we're getting recognition of the importance of those roles. And I think that's a really exciting um, launchpad for our industry. I think that um, when I speak to our people, what they really want is respect and recognition. And I think each of us can make a difference in that. You know, we're always in an environment where we're being served a coffee in the morning or we are passing a cleaner in the bathroom. How often do we stop to say thank you? And that's all they really want to know is they're not a number. They're actually a mom or a dad. Um, You know, they've got their children at home that they're providing for, and they want to be recognised for the work that they do. So I think the big opportunity, and I don't think it needs to be five years, I think it's from now, is for us to actually respect people who work in these job roles and take the opportunity when we bump into them to say, thank you for a job well done. It's
1: so easy when you explain it like that. Why why do we miss that? Why do people get caught up in not doing that?
0: I think we've got a false construct around um you know the value that different job roles provide. we've We've taken remuneration as being indicative of value. And I think that's just so wrong. Um you know at a human to human level, we can respect one another and we can say thank you. Um what motivates people isn't just money. It's not just their remuneration. It's actually, them feeling part of a workplace it's them feeling recognized for what they bring and as you say that cost us absolutely nothing to mm. give so let's give it.
1: Those lessons as a young girl in the restaurant at a young age have had a massive impact on you I, I had no idea that's what I love about mm. these conversations <laughs> um, it shaped you it's really imprinted in you this fairness this diversity because I, I hear a lot of people talk about it and I see a number of companies have it on their brochures, but they don't have it on their behaviours. And mm. you go, ah, oh, it read so well, but you did so little. But with you, it's congruent. And mm. it's lovely to see where that's come from.
0: Mm. Thank you. And I'm very fortunate to work in an organisation like Compass where it is really a shared value. It was one of the things that impressed me most when I came to interview with the organisation was those values just jump out at you. Um, and they're not top down, they're actually bottom up which is incredible. Mm.
1: So where do you draw inspiration from?
0: Well, um, so today is International Women's Day and as part of the celebration of that, we've profiled 15 women who work um, in our organisation. And just this morning I was reading about JAR. And JAR is one of our team members at our hospital, um, the Royal Iron Ear Hospital in Melbourne, and she's one of our cleaning team and when I read her story, it's it's just so incredible and so inspiring. So she became an orphan when her house was bombed in Cambodia. She then got sent to a camp on the border of the Thai border. Eventually she was adopted by a Thai family, but at the age of 17 was sent out to work. So she started working. Um, she uh, found an Australian husband, moved to Australia, then found she was in an abusive relationship with her husband so she stood up for herself and she actually divorced her husband, but then she found herself in a series of temporary work and, of course, low-paid work, low-skilled work because she didn't have any formal qualifications here in Australia. Um, eventually, Compass gave her the opportunity to study for a cert 3 and as a result of that she's now got a permanent position. But not only has she stabilised her work life, but she continues to um, cook food on Saturdays to take to the temple. She's, she practises a Buddhist religion um, and just give back to her community. And I just, when I look at someone like her, I think, wow, you know, talk about resilience, that's resilient. Um, to have gone through all of that and I think how lucky are we to have someone like that in our workplace. So how do we learn from them? You know, next time I want her to be sitting up here telling you her story, not well, me. I was thinking
1: <laughs> how amazing because I, I, I ask that question and people often say it's a book, it's a play, it's a poem and I often lead into that yeah. but I specifically asked you an open-ended yeah. question Oh, that's beautiful with you.
0: We have so many people like that in our organisation and actually taking the time to notice them and taking the time to hear their stories. It's part of a process we do called Leadership Interactions where we go to site and we'll actually speak to people and understand who they are as opposed to what is the work that they're performing. And I could, you know, give you 10 more stories like that. Give me one more. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I'll tell you about Dolly then. So I met Dolly when we were preparing the meals for the Ruby Princess um, which was that stand-up kitchen that we did. And I was walking around and Dolly just looked incredibly distressed. I mean, this is now, was it, like the 4th of April or something. So we were knee-deep in COVID. And so I introduced myself and we had a bit of a chat and Dolly said, well, I'm on my own in Australia because my husband um, has had to go off to India to see his parents and he's now got trapped there. He can't get back into the country And I'm doing this work casually because, you know, I've been stood down for my other role and I don't know where the paycheck's coming for to pay the rent for next week. And so I had a bit of a chat with the supervisor who was there and I said, okay, as long as this program keeps going, can we please make sure Dolly (laughs) Dolly gets some shifts? Anyway, fast forward um, a few months later, and I go into the hotel quarantine program, and I'm walking through one of the basements, talking to the people who are, are you know, checking the bags, there. And Dolly comes running up to me and she says, "Shelly, Shelly, I'm here." <laughs> so Dolly had progressed from casual work um, to to the work in the hotel quarantine program, and then just recently, um, we've won the contract to serve breakfast at the Holiday Inn Express uh, hotels nationally, and so I went up to. Um, to Newcastle to the Holiday Inn Express where our team were. I was actually on holiday in the area so I popped in and there was Dolly so, you know, if you just think about that as a progression through COVID from being a casual team member to now being a supervisor at a mm. brand new site that we didn't even have during COVID, it's just a great example of what can actually happen. Mm. So as much as we talk about the woes of COVID, you know, there are these highlight moments and I think we just have to share those highlight moments and, and talk about them.
1: And for people listening, what they won't have seen then is your eyes <laughs> got a little <laughs> bit glistening you teared up.
0: Yeah, well, I just think, you know, it. Everyone needs someone looking out for them. I I was very fortunate in my career. I had people look out for me and give me advice and, you know, nudge me in the right direction. And I think if we can do that for someone, there's nothing more inspiring than that.
1: How many more dars and dollies are there?
0: Oh, so many. So many, I as I separate, say, let's just let's just notice podcast, them. Let's I, uncover yeah. them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, a, a really good way to close out. What, what would your advice be to other small business owners? And, and a lot of big business employees are listening to this podcast as well. We're finding we're getting traction yeah. outside of small business. What would your advice be to them to, to notice the DARS and the DOLLIES? In the I, I think just
0: get to know your people, right? I mean, especially in Australia, we have people who have qualifications that we don't even know they have. Um, and come from backgrounds and experiences, they've got so much value they can add. And it really, you know, they might be in a job role, but that that's not the sum total of who they are and what they can bring. So, you know, as a small business, as we were saying earlier, you're wanting to unlock discretionary effort. You know, you're wanting to get more than what you're paying for because you're trying to get to that next step. And I just think people are our single biggest underestimated and underutilised resource. I think, you know, we put a box around them, we give them a number, we say go off and iterate this task. And actually if they bring their full self to work, they feel included, Um, the value that we will get from them. I mean, I I don't have to look at a report to know what's selling in in one of our restaurants or not. The chef knows, the site manager knows, the attendant on the till knows. How do we harvest that? How do we embrace that? And, you know, how do we give them the respect they deserve?
1: I've asked you a lot of questions today. (laughs) Is there a question you'd like me to ask you? Is Is there a question when you're walking down here thinking, I hope you ask me this? Or is there a question you'd like to ask me?
0: I suppose just thinking about um, you know NAB and, and the small business team, um, and you're a small um, business, but a growing business, and you know soon world domination is coming, Andrew. It's drive stronger. Um, you know what would you say is the have been those pivotal moments, and um, how have you reflected on your um, resilience and 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 the skills and techniques that you teach and applied them or not?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think in your darkest times or probably a better frame in your most challenging times that's the opportunity and you run at it and try and work it out and you learn more you grow more you develop more in the challenging times than you do when it's easy so I've learned so much more in my life i had cancer a number of years ago just before Michaela was born had a melanoma and I worried it had spread so I don't remember the first two or three months of Mickey's life but that taught me a lot more about appreciation and gratitude uh, I look back at probably the, the most challenging time in my life personally was a marriage breakdown. And after that, because I had, I had pinned my success on being the performance guy and suddenly a marriage failure, I, I wouldn't have, how do I see Shelley? And this was before I met you, but how would I explain that I've had a marriage failure? So I went through a whole re reauthoring of my schema that, you know, success, 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 success doesn't mean you're a well-rounded person. It's actually the the other side that gives you scar tissue. And I'm a much better coach and speaker and teacher and business owner because of that. And specifically from COVID, we've learned so much. So I think what I've learned to do, Shelly, in really challenging times, I'm actually good under pressure. Now you can train that because you, you've got references to draw upon. But I, I think for people, when you do go through challenging times, if you can sort of sit in the discomfort, yeah and it's taken me a while to even articulate this, but sit in the discomfort and don't run away from it straight away. Yeah. Because if you run away from it and go to what's easy, yeah. you're just going to do what you're doing before. Yeah. Yeah. So it is those challenging times like you, you've totally, uh, I'm not allowed to use the word pivot here. It was a pivotal moment, but you've done a backflip on your business, the way you operate. Yeah. You wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that unless we had COVID with industry stopping. So it's forced us to be creative. Mm. I don't want to go through it again this year. No,
0: <laughs> no, I, I know. But I, I think there will be some form of challenge that will be, you know, this isn't going to be the biggest thing we're yet to face. I do believe disruption. So whether that's market disruption or if you have a small business, you know, something disrupts in your competitive environment, um, you know, to a small business, there's so much going on around them that that can actually be as big and as significant as COVID probably has been to them. Mm. Um, so I think I think just learning those skills around resilience or even just debriefing what it was that made it successful in an otherwise very, very difficult year. It's so important for us to actually distill those learnings.
1: You've used the word skills a lot today. I don't know whether it's the influence of coaches you've had. I don't know whether it's Deep inside you and in your belief system, or well, maybe it's a combination of the two. But I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's skills. Mm. Optimism is a skill. Like your nickname is Sunshine Shelley, yeah. right? So you probably <laughs> you had a predisposition when you were young. Yeah. But you can train optimism. Yeah? yeah. You can train what to do before a meeting, a pre-performance routine. You can train drive. Yeah. You can train confidence. You like know, you can train self-talk. So that's what I love about this whole world of mental skills. Just because you think a certain way, you don't have to be like that for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah. We actually introduced a program last year for our female leaders, um, well, actually two years ago because um, we had 26% of our senior female of our senior leaders were females and we weren't happy with that and we wanted to move towards 50-50 and so we actually implemented a skills-based strength-based training program and as you say it was you know learning about your lizard brain learning about the self-talk learning about actually how wonderful you actually are that you didn't know you are and being confident so absolutely we have um, you know trained people in those skills and we now today have 48 percent of our senior leaders are female. Half the people on the course have been promoted um, a year after they did the course. So completely agree with you. I think that, um, you know, if that's anything a business is considering doing, taking a dedicated course where you put all those skills together and actually train them in one go, I think that's, um, there's they, you'll get your investment back mm. on that.
1: Congruency, compassion, cooking and care
0: (laughs) I like it the four C's (laughs) Uh,
1: for people who want to connect with you the fifth C how how can they find you online how can they connect with you well
0: of course on LinkedIn Andrew (laughs) and my personal mobile number is there (laughs) no look we'd love to connect I mean I think as I said small businesses we'd love to work with you um, you know and even if it's in an adjacency so it doesn't necessarily need to be in food service if it's in health and well-being services or it's in facility management services as you said before think of us really as a hotel operator, we do everything from way to go um, in hospitals. We run the whole hospital, everything up in clinical services. So there are so many areas of, of opportunity. Um, and then, um, you know, we'd love to, to talk to anybody about, um, about any services that they might need in, in partnership with us.
1: Mm, I love your energy. I love what you do for women in the workforce. I love what you do for men in the workforce as well. And I love having these conversations. So thank you very much for joining me.
0: Thank you, Andrew.
1: Hey, it's Andrew again and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really like this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast, and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages, and we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time, and we look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.